LegalizeFreedom.com Why are we here? Where do we come from? Where are we going? From the nature of reality to the future of humanity. Beyond politics, poverty and war. LegalizeFreedom.com Greetings and welcome once again to LegalizeFreedom.com I'm your host Greg Moffat and my guest today once again is Gary Lachman who joins us to discuss his book Beyond the Robot, The Life and Work of Colin Wilson. This is a three-part interview, part three will be released shortly. In this segment, amongst many other subjects, we discuss the relationship between mind and matter and how reality is apparently becoming more malleable, the science of self-actualization, the evolution of consciousness and the cosmos, and the future or not. For humanity. Hello and welcome, Gary. Thank you so much for joining us once again on LegalizeFreedom.com. Oh, it's my pleasure, Greg. Thanks for having me on. Today, Gary, we're doing part two of our little uh, three-part mini-series um, on a recent book of yours, um, not your latest, but a recent one, uh, entitled Beyond the Robot, The Life and Work of Colin Wilson. Uh, a lot of listeners are going to know who Colin Wilson was, and indeed, who you are. Uh, if they really don't, I'd refer them back to part one of this interview, which they'll find linked to this one. So we're going to dive straight in, and I want to just say a little bit, which will help people new to all this, about Colin Wilson's philosophy in general. Now, he's been, it's been written that he was the only positive existentialist. So I'm just wondering, perhaps you could just say a brief word about existentialism as a philosophy, and my reading of it before I investigated thoroughly was always that it was somehow some kind of essentially negative view of life, the universe and everything. And uh, also how Colin managed to, to, to be essentially an existentialist, but to find something positive in that. Right. Well, um, yes, Colin, um, I guess he, well, he was the Britain's own, uh, sort of only homegrown existentialist when um, he first um, uh, appeared. That was one of the tags about him with his um, uh, book, The Outsider. Um, but um, the what he developed in the books that follow The Outsider, uh, uh, like Religion and the Rebel, um, and uh, The Strength to Dream, and a few others that made up what we call The Outsider, uh, the outsider Cycle, was what he called um, a kind of optimistic put it this way, uh, uh, existentialism. Now, as you just said, that sounds kind of counterintuitive because when you think existentialism, you think of um, people like um, Jean-Paul Sartre or Albert Camus, and you think the left bank and um, uh, sort of uh, kind of um, nihilism uh, or a sense of um, a kind of um, world without meaning, uh, this kind of existential dread or the sort of existential emptiness. And um, what Wilson admired about the existentialists, uh, like Sartre and Camus and um, Martin Heidegger, the German philosopher from whom existentialism um, sort of uh, grew, emerged, was that they were confronting um, the sort of uh, state of things that had been arrived at, let's say, um, in, in the modern world uh, through the rise of science and the um, more or less demise or the diminishing of um, power of, say, the church uh, to <clears throat> provide a kind of meaningful narrative, you know, to existence. Um, and uh, this has had something that's been going on for a while. I mean, you have Nietzsche in the late 19th century um, talking about God being dead and um, the idea that man had to be overcome and his whole idea of the ubermensch, the overman, and in some way, uh, a complete rejection of the sort of Christian values um, and um, the whole narrative 
and the need to sort of start from scratch um, uh, in this world that no longer had that kind of background to it or, not, or didn't have the platonic sort of background either of some kind of logos or mind or reason um, behind reality. Uh, and this was the sense of the absurd that uh, Camus wrote about and um, and in a more negative and, and often devastating way, uh, nausea that... Um, Sartre wrote about a kind of um, metaphysical sickness when one realizes that <clears throat> things are real and they're actually more real than you are in some way um, because their existence is immediately given. Um, this is when Sartre talks about um, with human be well, with things, their essence precedes their existence in the sense that um, um, a chair or, you know, this computer I'm, I'm using, uh, the idea of it existed before it came into being. So in a sense, its reason was there before it came into being. But human beings, we just, we just exist. And we, we don't have a, you know, there, there isn't a kind of rough guide to why we're here or anything like that. And so Wilson sort of recognized that because he felt, yes, this, this was, you know, where, you know, Western consciousness had, had come to. Um, he knew we needed to reject this earlier kind of view of things. It was too simplistic and we outgrown it. But he didn't stop at that sense of the meaninglessness because he was also very aware of the kind of, I want to say, sort of mystical experiences or affirmation experiences of people like Blake or uh, William James or Nietzsche uh, uh, or several others or, <clears throat> you know, um, many of the um, yogis or uh, Christian saints. Uh, he had read quite a bit of um, Christian mysticism, so he was he was aware of this other uh, this kind of the sudden yay saying. Um, and he talks about G.K. Chesterton and this phrase he borrowed from him: um, <clears throat> "Absurd good news." Uh, suddenly, this kind of um, you know vision of a kind of total meaning, you know, the opposite, say, of um, nausea, uh, a kind of super health in a sense. And um, then he later came upon the work of um, the American psychologist Abram Maslow. And Maslow had written about what he called peak experiences. And again, there, there were these sort of moments of sudden um, happiness, goodness, um, contentment, or even, you know, stronger you know, joy, or even sort of a kind of, you know, rapture. Um, um, but not necessarily religious or even mystical. There was just a sudden sense of well-being, um, and um, he came to see that this was these sorts of moments were a normal sort of product, as it were, of, of a truly psychologically healthy human being, uh, someone who was um, um, moving up what he called the ladder of needs and and sort of growing beyond one's own sort of personal selfish needs and into these larger areas of what he called self-realization and all that, so um, um, <clears throat> self-actualization. So Wilson um, wanted to incorporate that into um, this new existential vision, because this would be a basis for this um, um, this kind of new, uh, basically new values. You know, Nietzsche had talked about a reevaluation of all values, and um, he didn't say exactly how it was supposed to go about, but he saw the need for it. Um, and so Wilson wanted to build on that idea on, on the basis of these, of, you know, this kind of what you want to call sort of positive or affirmation consciousness. The interesting thing that I found about uh, when I first read about existentialism, many people's attitude to life was that as beings, we evidently crave meaning and purpose. It just seems to be something that we're looking for, this, you know, ultimate meaning. And mm -hmm. we're then experiencing this desperate frustration that none exists. Now, none exists depending on your perspective, but certainly the, you know, an existentialist perspective or an mm -hmm. atheistic perspective. And religion was a kind of attempt to address this and say that there is meaning and purpose, but that was somehow unsatisfying and hollow in some ways. And so this is the wonderful thing about Wilson for me is that he seems to be saying, there is a middle way here. There are a third way, another way, whatever. There is an alternative to this. You know, you don't have to lose yourself in either of these kind of these situations. You know, these kind of untruths or half truths or whatever. That uh, yes. there's. Some, it reminds me very much of the a lot of talk these days is devoted to um, the synthesis ongoing, seemingly of science and spirituality. Uh, mm. some, something that I do a lot of work on, and uh, so that was the most liberating thing about Wilson for me is that I saw 
a kind of false dichotomy being presented to me in my mm. early life when I was trying to make sense of the world. And uh, when I read Wilson, it was kind of like, well, here's someone who's just stood back from it a bit and said, hang on, how about this? <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I think the, uh, the important thing with Colin's work is that he put the emphasis on consciousness itself. And <clears throat> consciousness, he came to see, was um, intentional. And this was an insight that um, he got from the um, German philosopher Edmund Husserl, who was actually who was, who was Heidegger's sort of teacher or mentor. So they had a falling out uh, in the <clears throat> uh, 1930s when the Nazis came to power. Um, and um, but um, Husserl's insight, and he, he's and and through which he developed the, this philosophical school called phenomenology, um, was this whole idea that. Consciousness is is intentional, uh, even though we don't feel it, we don't experience it immediately as a kind of act of will in in, um, <clears throat> but in, in a way. But it, it's 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 an intention that's sort of unconscious, for sake of a better word. It's it's um, deeper down in the in our structure of consciousness in some way. But Wilson came to see that Husserl had developed a method. And, and other philosophers who um, followed his work and developed this discipline um, discovered a way to sort of, in a way you can you, you could um, deconstruct, for sake of a better word, your 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 consciousness to be able to get to these sort of these kind of fundamental intentions. And um, it's a long long roundabout way of saying that. Wilson recognized there's an active character uh, of, of our own consciousness. Consciousness isn't a passive reflection of a reality that's already there. This is the standard view we have of it now that we've had since more or less, you know, the rise of, um, well, what we, what we've come to know as science and Descartes and John Locke. The whole idea with Locke is that there's nothing in the mind that, um, didn't, didn't get there through the senses. Everything comes through our senses. So we're sort of, um, passive recipient of, um, you know, phenomena coming at us from outside. And um, <clears throat> Wilson is saying through through Husserl that actually, no, it's the opposite. Some, have, the consciousness actually reaches out into the world and it grabs hold of it. And, you know, it, 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 it has a kind of selective character to it is another way to look at it. And it's an it's a process, but it's a process that we we've, we we're not aware of immediately. We, you know, it's not something that I, my ego, is doing voluntarily. But at a deeper level of consciousness, um, I, I I can I can see where, where that is the case. Um, any case, and so Wilson basically, um, and and you know he, he with with, with this, these sort of insights, he then collects um, an enormous amount of evidence. Um, you know, from literature, from philosophy, uh, science and psychology and so on, um, that support this idea of this kind of active, uh, you know, intentional character of consciousness itself. And so, um, again, uh, and this is something that, you know, you find in, in Blake, you find it um, in, in Gurdjieff and, you know, the whole idea that we're asleep, um, you know, we need to sort of shake and awake into a, um, <clears throat> a a true conscious state, which is again um, what he calls self-remembering, and this is uh, uh, again another way of expressing this active character of our consciousness. You mentioned uh, science several times there, and as you point out in your book, Colin did have a you know a scientific mind. He approached things that way. I'm reminded of the the episode that you relate in the book about his encounter with. Uh, psychedelics and he wasn't particularly enamored of that and he found it interesting but not something he wanted to pursue but i wonder what he would have made of the current trend i spoke earlier about the uh, kind of reintegration of science and spirituality Mm -hmm. there's there's this thing now called scientism you know where uh, some science some scientists have become as dogmatic as as the most dogmatic religious people but he was no you know follower of the church of scientism i think he was very much evidence-based but just simply that that evidence didn't always have to be measurable physical laboratory testable well it hardly ever was with 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 colin i mean in the sense that he wasn't a scientist in that way although you're right to say that he he thought of himself as or he well he when he when he was young that was the first thing that he pursued he was 
um, he was keen on science. He read science fiction and and the sort of science, um, you know, do-it-yourself kind of science uh, magazines. And he had a chemistry set, and you know, he wanted to be the first one to invent the atom bomb. And you know, he was disappointed when somebody got there <laughs> ahead of him and all that. But then, you know, through through um, certain basically kind of what you would call existential experiences, he you know uh, later discovered that what he wanted to do was right. But he considered himself a scientist in the sense that, as I said, he signed, he kind of collects evidence uh, for um, these theories or these ideas or insights uh, that he has. And but um, it's not so much test tubes as it is, you know, um, uh, work of people like, say, Hesse or Proust or Nietzsche or, um, you know, uh, as I said, Maslow, um, and, um, you know, he, he did write quite a bit about the, um, from sort of the 80s on, um, the right and left hemisphere and uh, psychology uh, around there. And uh, and then also, you know, I said in a, a whole other area of his work, he wrote about crime. Um, and um, initially, his interest in crime started out because of his interest in existentialism. Because in a way, the whole idea of murder, um, uh, not, 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 is a kind of complete nullifying of, of human value. And, um, Wilson's basically saying that, you know, the, the murderer basically throws his, his victim's life and his own life away, uh, often for, you know, the most paltry of things. And so, there's this complete devaluation of, of, of reality, of, well, of life. Um, Wilson says, though, this isn't, you know, this is something that's, there's a clear demarcation between the murderer and ourselves because we, we too are a, afflicted with the same kind of devaluing. We just don't go to the same extreme, um, that the murderer does. And one of the reasons why, you know, <laughs> we, we in, in a way, we have a morbid, thrill reading about these kind of cases is that they, they kind of shake us awake uh, to, you know, the reality of, of, of uh, you know, life and, and um, how, um, you know, how it can be, be reduced to nothing in this way. So, um, but, um, so he looked over, you know, different areas of, of I mean, he synthesized a lot of things um, into this um well, basically, this kind of insight, and he, he wasn't a mystic. You know, he was a philosopher. Um, he was interested in mystical experience, but himself, he always said he was, you know, um, ESP thick. He, you know, he he never claimed he 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 claimed basically to have um, achieved more intense uh, state of consciousness for a sort of extended period um, through having been forced to basically concentrate, focus. Focuses his own attention very tightly, and he talks about being snowed in um, <clears throat> New Year's Eve after giving a talk somewhere and not being able to get out of, you know, somewhere in Devon, some remote farm house or something. And um, <clears throat> to be able to get out back onto the road um, uh, after finally digging, you know, away for hours and so on and so on, um, he had to drive at a very slow speed and with full attention because he couldn't tell where, you know, the road was and where there was a ditch and it was very easy. He could have just fallen over again and so on. <clears throat> and he had to do that for, you know, quite some time. And then he found that sort of an after effect of, of being forced to focus his attention, um, very tightly on, you know, uh, what he was doing. Um, well, for one thing, it, uh, in his, in Wilson's sort of, um, the way he talks about human psychology is um, the robot, this sort of um, automatic pilot or this kind of um, inner servant we have who does things for us, um, who we usually hand over a great deal of our life to, <clears throat> was for that time put aside because, um, you know, Wilson Wilson himself, the, the real true uh, uh, I, had to be there uh, in order to, um, you know, uh, because it was necessary to be there, because the, the, the eye is what focuses attention. Um, so, uh, but he, you know, it's not, he says, yes, this is how it happened. And basically you can do this too, you know, and, 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 and here's a great deal of circumstantial or evidence, let's say, you know, cold from literature and philosophy and psychology and so on, uh, to support this. 
So, um, and what, what he, he didn't, um, he didn't care for his psychedelic experience. Um, and he also, he, he, not, he didn't sort of condemn psychedelics, but it wasn't something that he really thought ultimately would be helpful because I just said what was crucial here was this whole focusing and think that that's what the opposite of what psychedelics do. They sort of relax. They really, you know, um, I mean, Aldous Huxley famously said they sort of, you know, turn off these filters in, in the mind and let, you know, reality just come on through, you know, they turn the taps on full. And um, while that may have, you know, tremendous <clears throat> um, feeling in the sense of cosmic consciousness and so on, I mean, Wilson has said it's sort of in a way useless for the kind of work that he feels you really need to, just more along the other line, what, you know, he was talking about this attention and focus and all that. But mind you, you know, he was he was very fond of wine. He drank, he was a good uh, good drinker of, of wine and other um, you know other other spirit uh, alcohol and spirits. And uh, he actually wrote a book called The Book of Booze about it. So I mean, he was certainly you know enamored of altering his state of consciousness. But <clears throat> I guess his drug of choice was from a sort of early, previous generation. Exactly. I, th- I think uh, the, the analogy about, or rather, extending the oldest Huxley idea about the doors of perception if wait regular normal waking consciousness if we want to call it normal is like a desk lamp the psychedelic experience is a bit like the sun gone supernova you know (laughs) it's this kind of overwhelming light and i think what wilson might have actually been aiming for was more like a laser Mm -hmm. yeah well he'll he'll say that and he'll also he'll recognize that people have sort of well some have criticized him for saying it's too you know it's too sort of it's too focused it's too tight it's too controlling you know you have to sort of let go and all that kind of thing but from his point of view no that's not i mean he's not rigid i wouldn't say and again he was a romantic and he also again the other the other the other side of it is that um these kind of peak experiences um he, he felt you could kind of generate them and it's precisely through a process of sort of this concentration and relaxation. It's kind of tight focus and then relaxing. Um, and he talks about um, a method that he had developed of doing this. Where you, um, well, for him, he took a pen and he held up a pen against, um, say, a wall. And he looked, look, you know, held the pen up in front of himself uh, at arm's length, let's say, and then, you know, he could focus on it and then he could focus on what was in the background. And um, he would he would focus tightly on on the pen, his consciousness and his his vision on it, and you know, for a certain amount of time, and then relax, and then bring you know go out of focus and have the rest of the room come back, and then 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 again focus tightly on the pen and so on and so on. And he said he continued to do this over a certain amount of time, and then it actually became sort of painful uh, to do. But then he said if he pushed it, um, that he would get a sudden kind of rush or a certain kind of um opening you're talking about the door's perception you know and and this this is the sort of thing that he does talk about and he talks about in his uh you know early earlier life he had an experience uh, like cornwall like that where he basically sort of focused and, and f- sort of forced open the doors of perception you know uh, but again it's something you know uh, it's not it's not a one-time event and he was enlightened um but he did he felt certain that, you know, through effort, through, through focused effort and sort of knowing what you were doing, um, you, you, you could sort of momentarily do this. But the problem is, um, you know, the, the door's perception closed very quickly. And he also has an evolutionary reason why that happens. And, and that's the other side of it, too, that what I always found very important about Colin Wilson's work is that he focused not only on, okay, what, you know, what can we do or uh, how can we get, you know, higher consciousness? It's like, well... Why is our consciousness the way it is now? And how did it get that way? And, and he has a sort of evolutionary narrative to explain that, which, which makes sense, um, um, in a way, because what you, going back to what you just said about the comparison between the desk lamp and the supernova is, uh, yes, while the desk lamp is limited, I have one on now, but, you know, it helps me, you know, more or less deal with what I need to deal with immediately. Whereas the supernova just completely, you know, would wipe, <laughs> wipe, it would be fantastic, but it would wipe me, wipe my, wipe me out. I, I'd not be able to, you know, do anything. And that's the whole point, you know. We're, we're sort of here to 
um, yes, if we have cosmic consciousness on the side, that's okay. But actually, our main thing is sort of to you know deal with the world, you know, and be able to kind of uh, navigate through it. And you know, our consciousness needs to be limited in order to do that. Now, you mentioned a few minutes ago crime, and it's uh, quite opposite that you've touched on that. Um, it reminds us about a point made in the first part of our interview, which was that Colin Wilson ranged widely um, over many subjects, things that he felt he should be looking into, also just things that kind of just took his fancy, it seemed. And another point we made in the first part was that, for me anyway, and um, I think this comes across well in your book, that there was a kind of a central idea in everything that he touched so, for example, it's clear in uh, Beyond the Outsider, sorry, that's the title of one of his books, but as, apart from his debut, The Outsider, published, yeah. published in 1956, his, one of his other big books, possibly the second biggest one, was called The Occult, but that was mm. so, so much more than it appeared to be to the ca- mm. casual observer, and this one central idea running through it, and he also, as you say, wrote extensively about crime, but also many other things about sex, which is interesting. Mm-hmm. And this yeah. wasn't any kind of purient kind of, you know, top shelf, try to shift a few copies. In sex itself, uh, in all aspects of it, he again brought out his thinking about his one big idea mm-hmm. a- about consciousness. And of course, sex in many ways is transcendental. So he was looking at that as an altered um, form of consciousness, as, mm-hmm. as, a, as a way to transcend this reality and as something that pointed to a deeper and wider reality, you know, when uh, uh, basically a state of super consciousness, mm. you see what I mean? That the orgasm was more than just kind of the most intense pleasure. It kind of, for the thinking person, it pointed to something and it's, uh, and obviously he had, and, you know, his own autobiographies, he wrote quite candidly about his own sex, mm. sex life, but it's just one of, aside from crime, it was one of his other subjects that he explored. Mm. Oh yeah, yes. Uh, yes. I mean, and often the two together, yeah. <clears throat> say like the Jack the Ripper or Murders or uh, on a less gruesome level, Marquis de Sade and so on. But uh, I mean, all, all of you say there's one thing, and and, and, it, and he does announce it in the beginning of the occult, and he says he says all of my work is focused on on the, this one central theme. It's what he calls the paradoxical nature of freedom, and it's the idea, or or the, the not even the idea. It's it's the, the phenomena, this strange phenomena that. Uh, we experience is that when our freedom is threatened, uh, say, you know, very literally, uh, in the way that he gives examples at the beginning of the cult, he talks about the uh, Russian tanks, you know, rolling into Warsaw, um, <clears throat> something along those lines. You know, freedom is something that, you know, is very palpable and its value is undeniable and we will fight, you know, and, you know perhaps, you know, sacrifice our lives to to have it. But when the threat recedes, <clears throat> somehow that immediate recognition of the um, undoubted value of freedom recedes as well. We don't experience it as intensely, even though, you know, shortly before we did experience it and we recognized how important it was, you know, how crucial it was, and so on and so on. And this is true of other things. I mean, freedom is the thing that he most mostly uses. And, and also really mostly means the kind of inner inner kind of freedom. But but really, anything of any sort of deep value that we have. And again, this goes back to um, one of his reasons why he studied crime and, and murder and all that, is that it seems to be the complete rejection of that view. <clears throat> it's the complete opposite of the, of the view of, of uh, the threat, you know, how freedom becomes real when it's threatened. The, 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 the murderer is complete negation or absolute sort of devaluation of freedom is the complete opposite of that. And um, it's the same thing with sex. I mean, uh, again, Wilson was not into drugs, but he was certainly interested in sex. And as you say, um, he wrote about it. He wrote, he wrote non-fiction philosophical books about it. I think one of his most important books is called Origins of Sexual of the Sexual Impulse. And that's what he was trying to understand. It's like, what actually is the sexual impulse? And of course, he's, he's writing about it from a man's point of view. I mean, that just seems obvious. I, I, although I guess these days you have to point these things out. I mean, of course that's the case. So, you know, <clears throat> yes, it has limitations and so on and so on. But still, within within <laughs> within those um, limits, um, it's a phenomenological study of you know uh, the sexual impulse. 
um, and what, what its true aim is. I mean, not you know, obviously we, we know what it is phys- phys- physically, even biologically, and so on and so on. And so on but um, in the sense of our our complete sort of uh, what you want to call sort of spiritual economy of our own being, what, what part does it play? Um, I mean, it, it goes <clears throat> in a way. Um, Wilson is trying to get at was was summed up um, by the Russian um, uh, Christian existentialist philosopher Nikolai Berdyaev um, when he said that man is a sexual being. And of course, human he means humans, man and sexual beings, um, and in the sense that you know, or sex. Uh, I mean, we, we we have we have intense intestines and stomachs and and other organs, just like we have sex organs. But we wouldn't say we are a digesting being. You know, di- our digestion is something that plays. You know, it obviously plays a very important part. But that's we wouldn't just say that was our or in, in any way could somehow you know um, serve as a center of our you know of our purpose and why we're here. Whereas our sexual organs have something that it's more than that. You know, there's a whatever you want to call it. There's a larger uh, uh, aspects and, and 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 facets and dimensions to to. Uh, to them, and this is this is what Wilson is trying to um, you know um, uncover, and and fundamentally he sees he sees it as um, as he sees many of these other things that he pursues as being at bottom um, associated with this this more intense kind of consciousness that um, uh, he's pursuing. Um, he, he basically wants to understand. Okay, you know when when threat even inconvenience some somehow there somehow there is some kind of challenge to our values a challenge to our freedom <clears throat> as i said our our perception of it intensifies and we can we can without doubt we recognize how valuable it is how can we carry over that that same kind of firm grasp because as i said earlier our, our consciousness is, is intentional our consciousness reaches out and grabs the world it doesn't just passively reflect like a mirror much more like a hand, and in those moments of crisis, that intentionality becomes greater, and hence we see the true value of things, which we had all along been, you know, sort of t- taking very casually. So he wants to learn how to do that. He wants to learn how do you, how can we sort of, you know, force that kind of crisis on ourselves? Because uh, it should be a way that we can learn the mechanism of it without having to resort to something like crisis or, or, or danger. Uh, you know, the whole idea of living dangerously, this is something that many of Wilson's outsiders pursued, um, that these, these crazy lives, just because they knew that the, the comfortable life would be a kind of spiritual death for them, because they had an instinct that, that, that they needed something that would force them to, you know, focus their consciousness in some way, so they they live lives, you know, as Nietzsche said, they live, they live dangerously. But in the way Wilson points out, he's very, very logical. He's very practical and says, yes, that, yes, true, yes, that does happen. But in the end, it doesn't work. You know, it, it, it's sort of, it, it's subject to the law of diminishing returns. And also, it's just quite, you know, it's quite counterproductive, you know. We, we created civilization in, in order to overcome all these inconveniences. So what we need to do is not, not to go live dangerously. We need to somehow understand the mechanism yeah, we do seem to be a species that kind of, well, thrive is the wrong word, but almost, uh, you know, demand a crisis before we act. Um, it's a bit, we're like that as individuals as well, aren't we? You know, we end up in hospital and then we start to do something about our health or whatever it happens to be. Uh, we, uh, you know, our car engine explodes and then after that we start having it serviced or whatever. That's very much where we find ourselves today. I think that he was ahead of the curve with, mm. with recognizing that, um, and I used this expression in the first uh, interview, you know, the kind of Western civilization in particular to come to a sort of a dead end. And he was ahead of a lot of writers who are around now kind of saying, we are being challenged to evolve here. You know, this cannot mm. go on. And I know that mm. th- this cannot go on feeling is kind of tied in mm. with the idea of end times and apocalypse. And it seems to be as old as mankind. Mm-hmm. Um, but he seemed to very much identify it in a, uh, a modern context, you know, in a 20, 20th, stroke, well, 21st century yes, context. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think the thing with Colin too is I think he also, he, he, his first, his first few books, I mean, he was known to be, you know, he, he came to fame as one of the angry young men, and he always said, well, he wasn't, he was young, but he wasn't angry. He wasn't angry about the things that, you know, the other ones were, because that was mostly sort of social concerns and all that. He had a, 
I said a, a religious, so existential sort of point of view. But <clears throat> there is there is a, there is a kind of intensity in the first couple of books, like The Outsider and Religion and the Rebel. Um, and Religion and the Rebel is really his most angry book, let's say, because it's in that book. And again, he's still a very young man. Uh, he, he he talks about Western civilization being, uh, you know, I said on its way out, and the outsiders are pimples, <laughs> like pimples that appear on the face of you know modern society and so on and so on. Um, and um, but the thing is, like after those those two books, he starts to develop this much you know more. It's he's involved, but he's not he's not as angry. He's not he's not quite as passionate, and he's it's much more philosophical. But and, and, and you know he's still eminently readable. But there's a kind of there's a kind of maturity, let's say. It's it's it, the the tone is much more. He's more, much more interested in trying to figure this thing out, and it is this kind of optimism that that comes in because he does he he does see like where yes he does see where this change is, is may very well be on its way. He he felt that with the beginning of the with the romantics he felt. That the, uh, a shift in human consciousness had taken place, but again, he, he doesn't see it in some sort of you know apocalyptic way or millenarian or um, some sort of very obvious sort of social change taking place. He sees it in terms of you know consciousness developing in people, um, and this is something that takes place you know in the inner world. It's not necessarily immediately recognized uh, out out in the world and. These characters that he talks about, outsiders, these are people that, in their own way, they ha they have a kind of intuition of this. This the, the, first, they they feel the need for this new kind of consciousness because, um, you know, nothing that's in the world satisfies them um, in, in any kind of serious way. And then they also, you know, occasionally have flashes of something that suggests this kind of new way of uh, you know experiencing. The world, and um, again, in their own way, they, they they're pursuing that. And uh, if they're successful, they're able to maybe produce works of art or other forms you know, that can spread. But it's along those kinds of lines. And um, he certainly felt there was the need for it. But he, he he was very very optimistic. And even though I think, one, I mean, I, I've read all of his books and over the years, and God, most of them I've read them reread, you know, many many times. And um. He's very, very optimistic. I mean, you know, for some people, he's even too optimistic. Some people say, like, well, he just didn't, you know, he'd been, to, you know, he was down there in Cornwall, and he just didn't pay attention to a lot of this other stuff. And you can say that that's true, but other people were. So, you know, <clears throat> if you want that, you can go to them. But if you want this kind of um, insights that Colin had about consciousness, and he, again, yes, they are. They're, they're, he, he, he felt that we were on the brink of grasping this, you know. Central insight about consciousness and the the romantics, the romantic poets and novelists and musicians and all uh, they had these sudden ecstasies, these sudden you know um, moments of intense delight and uh, you know powerful meaning, um, but they couldn't hold on to them. You know they came and they they went and then when they went they mostly left the romantics very depressed because they felt like oh my god I you know just had a vision of heaven and now I'm sent back here to you know dull gray banal London or you know Paris or wherever they were. Yeah, and that's in that sense I suppose this the psychedelic experience is a bit like that and it's kind of this temporary transcendence thing that for exactly. some for some people can involve a bit of a nasty come down. Now Colin was uh the, the power of positive thinking, let's say, just that catchphrase is mm -hmm. is not a new thing. Uh you could trace that back to uh, certainly w with Eastern philosophy, perhaps moving into the West, you know, a figure like Alan Watts, for example. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know if Colin ever met him, but uh, it strikes me, or, uh, particularly these days looking back, that Colin was there with mm -hmm. a lot of what we currently see, you know, that the, the aforementioned power of positive thinking, the, the current mm -hmm. fad for manifesting everything, you know, right back to uh, Think and Grow Rich, right through to The Secret. Hello. Whatever Hello. you make of all of this, you know, so I'd, be, I'd love to know what what Colin would be thinking. Now, obviously, it's not that long since he passed away, and he mm. may have had opinions on this, but I'd just love to know where he would find himself, you know, say, for example, at a drinks reception with uh, Eckhart Tolle and Deepak Chopra and all these people, you know. Uh, <laughs> well, I think he would be, you know, very polite and gracious and all that, but uh, I don't know. I my own feeling is that I think he would, he would, you know, he would respect their work perhaps, but find it, you know, privately he would 
probably find it rather thin. Um, I mean, you know, yes, this positive thinking, you know, the Norman Vincent Peale's, you know, phrase has become very popular. In fact, I've just, I've just finished a book about it and it's, it's links to Trump and all, all that. Um, but, um, for Colin, as I said, it's, 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 it's not about manifesting, you know, success and all that kind of thing. And, uh, although he would, he even says somewhere, he said that Norman Vincent Peale might not have been a, you know, a deep intellect, but he had insights into some, you know, something that Freud, you know, completely missed. So, um, I think he would have, you know, as you said, you know, uh, yes, positive, but it's not, it's not, you know, it's not the kind of thing that Napoleon Hill and uh, those guys are, kind of focused on, but still he would say it. Yes, we, we, our consciousness is involved in creating reality in the sense of, but not creating reality from scratch. And he, and he certainly, you know, he, he, uh, he was a great collector of synchronicities and, you know, he just certainly believed that our own consciousness can affect, you know, can kind of trigger synchronicities. And, you know, um, so the idea that the inner and the outer, you know, the, the interior world and the ex- external world in some way blend or in some way can, uh, the one can affect the other. Was something that I, I think he, you know, uh, believe could be, you know, true, uh, or, 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 or it is, it, it is true, but whether, you know, to sort of use that, I mean, I, I think he would think, you know, using that insight in order to get money would be just a waste of time. Well, I, I got a couple of synchronicities for you. Uh, when I was, when I was <laughs> sure. reading, when I was, yeah, when I was reading, well, they involve you tangentially or perhaps not so tangentially, oh. but I was, uh, when I was reading your book in preparation for these interviews, uh, I did it over a number of sessions. And I tend to like to read in coffee shops, bit of a cliche, but there it is. In one session one week, I was sat there for about an hour and they had the piped music in the coffee shop. You know, it's just a selection of uh, classic hits and more contemporary things. It's just, you know, Starbucks type of music, but it wasn't Starbucks. Anyway, so uh, in case listeners don't know, at one point, <laughs> at one point in your career, uh, you were a musician and were part of the lineup of uh, New York band Blondie, who a lot of people have heard of. They're very successful. Anyway, point is, Blondie track comes on in amongst all this. Now, no big surprise there. You know, that, that stuff gets radio play to this day. But I was just sitting thinking, you know, about some concept in your book, and up pops the track. I haven't heard it in that coffee shop before or since. So I counted that as a small synchronicity, especially because the following week when I was in there, didn't hear any Blondie tracks. But uh, a young girl walked through the door wearing a Blondie T-shirt while I was reading your book. And I thought, well, you know, I'm sure you can get there easily available online. No doubt it might even have been a bootleg. But the point was, <laughs> she was wearing it while I was thinking about concepts in your book. So that's a couple yeah, of things. Yeah, well, you know, of course, it's, well, somehow it attracts. This, I guess that's what this notion of law of attraction uh, is based on. Although the thing with that is that that's actually a, mis- a misreading of um, Swedenborg originally. So it's it's very similar. You know, the whole idea that you sort of your being attracts your life, um, and then this is sort of you know, when we pass on into the you know the next the next world, you, you, go, you go to heaven or hell. So you you you're, you are attracted to one or the other, you know, based on your your sort of being. So it's rather than as it's sort of understood here on the earthly plane, you sort of you know you're you're somehow your your mental being attracts the things. So if you have the right thoughts, you will attract you know the kinds of things you want and all that sort of stuff. Well, in my interview with the American psychologist stroke psychotherapist, uh, Kirby Surprise, that's his real name, who wrote the book, a book called Synchronicity. He's very scientific in his approach. And he reckoned in his estimation, in terms of our active participation, you know, of our consciousness in reality, mm-hmm. that maybe we can have a, at our most active, we can maybe have a 5% effect on outcomes in, t- you know, in terms of our intention. What we see, what we look for, we get what we give. But that is huge if you think about the difference it can make in your life. And again, I'm just relating that back to Colin's Colin's idea. I mean, 5% can be the difference between life and death, uh, meeting meeting the love of your life or not, getting getting the job you want or not, you know. So this no, it's true. It's true. It's true. Yeah. No, you're right. No, you're right. You're right. right. And of course, 5%. You know, I mean, um, he talks about the dominant 5% and the dominant. 0.005%, 0.005%, but it's not quite the same thing. No, but, but it's interesting. That, it's interesting that you come up that that figure is mentioned, and again, yeah. you, you relate this again in the book because again, it's not we're not talking about the same five percent, but it's interesting that that it's that sort of percentage. You know, it, yes, it's marginal, but it can make all the difference. Well, I think that's true. I think you know, I mean, I I I don't know about it in terms of statistically and all that. And again, the sort of way that 
Paul Wilson's thinking about it, it's not so much trying to bring about certain events. It's more about understanding you know, your own consciousness more and more, gaining more, more, more control over it. And the more you do that, or focus you in the first place, you said you, you, you will generate, you know, you will, it'll just happen. You will generate more, you know, moments of absurd good news. And then this becomes something more than these sudden flashes of kind of happiness, whatever you want to call it, or delight. You understand why you're having them, what's going on, and then what's more, more important is what they are revealing. Because the, the, the basic ingredient of, of, of these moments is the kind of recognition that, you know, um, basically it's recognition of reality. It sounds, it sounds ridiculous. You know, you know, it's the kind of thing where we don't have the language in order to describe it, but, uh, you know, Colin, he, he talks about what he calls faculty X. And it's just called faculty X because we don't have a name for it. It's something that we experience all the time. And, and there's many, many examples of it in literature. One, you know, one of the famous ones is Proust when in, in moments of things past when, uh, he has his character <clears throat> taste a bit, taste a bit of this kind of cake, this sort of, um, sort of biscuit dip, dipped in this kind of herbal tea. And he has a sudden memory and he can't, figure out exactly what it is and then he then he realizes what it is and it's when he used to go on on holiday as a you know young boy in the north of France and um but it all comes back to him in this in this complete sudden the reality of it it's not just the bare fact that he went there on holiday like yes I went to whatever I went to France last year the the it's a three-dimensional sort of sudden very vivid realization that 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 was real and true so we have moments of this and this is something that's going you know Colin, this is like actually how consciousness should be working most of the time. We are asleep. He doesn't use that language exactly, but he he's very much, you know, in agreement with Gurdjieff and Dispensky in those uh, on, on those lines. Um, <clears throat> because this evolutionary sort of help helper that we've developed called the robot, that um, whose real job is to take over repetitious tasks. Um, uh, or, or to do do things that once we've learned them, once we've spent time, say when you ride a bicycle, you know, you, you have to spend all this time focusing on exactly what you're doing in order to, you know, learn how to ride. You have to focus your attention on each on each movement and step and so on. But once you get it, you no longer have to do that. You just do. You just ride the bike, and then you can think about other things, where you're going. You can even have a conversation if you're cycling with someone else and so on. So the robot is miraculously doing something that not too long ago cost you a lot of effort and, and struggle. So it's wonderful. We need it. We wouldn't be able to be the complex beings that we have, who we are without it. But the problem is is that it does its job too well, as Colin says, and it takes over doing things that actually we rather do ourselves. Well thinking about synchronicities again, I think that they're kind of reminding us of something. That is to say that you know the deeper level of reality, a kind of a background reality that we're only partially aware of. Again mm -hmm. thinking about the Huxley's doors of perception thing. For me, anyway, it seems that part of the evolution of consciousness is becoming more aware of this and being more able to be aware of it actively and engage with it. That's kind of a path that we're on. And sometimes in an existential crisis or a devastating life event, um, and even near-death experiences and things like that can be a wake-up call for saying, pay attention. So I think for people who would say, would deny the significance, for example, of synchronicities, they're actually happening to them anyway. It's just mm. that they're not paying attention. It's like I said earlier, the more you look, the more you see sort of thing. So mm. I think this is happening to all of us equally. It's just how conscious, uh, consciously aware we are of it. And I think that these, events are serving an important function, particularly at this time, you know, in human history. They're kind of like just saying, over here, over here, pay attention, there is something here. Yeah. And that this, the frequency and severity of these things will be kind of directly proportional to what we need. Mm. Um, yeah, I think, I mean, that, 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 that's something um, uh, in his later books, I know Colin um, did sort of talk about he, it um it was it was never like a, a very sort of big statement but in, it, it, in his way he sort of in, in in his conclusion he would come to and say well this is what the evidence seems to suggest to me and even if it you know he recognizes that other people might think this is just you know absurd he said well, I, I just can't i can't ignore you know the evidence seems to point to this and he he did feel there was some you know um especially in this book um uh, alien dawn he did about um, the UFO phenomenon. Now, this was something that he hadn't paid any attention to, and he even, he even 
writes says that in the book, um, and that you know he, he had read books about UFOs in the, in the 1950s, and he had a mild interest in the occult and so on, you know, early on. But even when he came to write, you know, the occult in the 70s, um, well, he wrote in the late 60s. He came out in 71. Um, <clears throat> he still wasn't that particularly interested in the UFO phenomena, and he hadn't realized it had grown into this huge kind of you know new thing, you know, and, um, in, you know, there's even academic studies on it and so on and so on. Um, so in a way, he was very fresh to it, but the reason I'm bringing it up is that in the end he came to feel that things like the abduction, you know, experiences, um, to go in a very, very extreme, uh, and, and, and of course we know that synchronicities, you know, involved uh, Jacques Vallée and uh, people of that sort involved in, um, ufology and the study of these sort of strange phenomena. Um, uh, um, Kong came to feel that there was some kind of intelligence in some way that was interacting with human consciousness, and as you say, introducing it to these wider realities, different dimensions of being that are quite, you know, incredible. I mean, I, I can read these books and say, okay, I'll, I'll give you the benefit of the doubt, and I have an open mind and all that, but I can't say I've had anything like the sorts of experiences that uh, he talks about, although I have had quite, quite a few very significant synchronicities and um, also precognitive sorts of experiences and it's because of those that I'm willing to be open-minded about some of these other things but yes I and and the, uh, and the idea that um, somehow you know the partition between you know the worlds the dimensions is, has become thinner in some way I, I, I that's one of the things I've, I talk about in this book I mentioned earlier that, um, that I was um, just finished and it's coming out later um, the next year about um, I said Trump and, and positive thinking and a whole lot of, a lot of other kind of magic or occult politics I'd say around um, uh, him and his uh, presidency um, but this whole idea that somehow you know the post-truth the alternative fact reality is malleable you know reality is what you make it and this is something that say post-modernism post positive thinking new thought and chaos magic you know, things that aren't necessarily immediately, don't seem immediately related, but they all share this whole kind of idea that reality is some, in some ways become much more malleable, you know, than, than it, 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 it ever, it ever was. And even the whole idea of, you know, the, the sort of interface between television and, and, you know, reality with reality TV. And now we have <laughs> a reality television person as, as the president of the United States. Well, wasn't it Carl Rove in the Bush administration in the wake of 9-11 who talked about, you know, we, we create reality or whatever his, his turn of phrase was. That is to say, you know, they put out statements and they say, you know, it doesn't matter what you saw, this is what happened type thing. And, and yeah, yeah. thus it is. <laughs> yes. Well, I, I, yeah, well, yeah, true. I think, I, I think in some ways that was covert, but I think today it's sort of, you know, anyways, I think the whole idea of having to hide doing that in some ways is, in itself doesn't seem to be as important. It's kind of, you know, very um, kind of obvious, um, you know, blatant, you know, disregard for truth and all that. And there's this kind of contempt for the idea of truth when you do that. Yeah, exactly. It's like, you know, there'd be no absolute truth and, and nothing is, uh, you know, you, you can't get to the mm. bottom of anything because there's always another level, which may be true to an extent, but yeah, you mm. get into a strange world, you know, it, which is actually on, not unlike the psychedelic experience where nothing really yes. is, can ever be said to be what it appears to be. Yes. Who's the danger? We, we spoke earlier about, uh, Abraham Maslow and, you know, as I say, his hierarchy of needs. He was certainly someone who also talked about peak experiences. And about how, when he was lecturing his students about this, that even just him talking about it, uh, it got to the point where they were able to induce peak experiences, just, mm. just thinking about them, which mm -hmm. again, you know, something that Wilson would have appreciated. Mm. Oh, yes. Yeah, and obviously so. he corresponded with, uh, with Maslow. And I suppose one of the things about the current climate that we find ourselves in, you know, the doom, gloom and destruction, is that we're perhaps in danger of moving down the hierarchy of needs, albeit temporarily. This is one of the things that troubled Maslow in his last days, where he believed that um, the, this, this top level, you know, what he called the self-actualization, which is involved in what he called being needs, um, this would emerge. This is something that's just, you know, this is part of our almost biological, you know, um, being. This is, this is, this is, this is going to happen. 
it's sort of the end point of our psychological maturity. But he came to see that many people don't go beyond what he called the self-esteem need, which is basically, basically well, you, you, the, the fundamental need is for, you know, food and then shelter and then some kind of relationship, you know, some kind of relationship with the other, or even, even a pet or something like that. Uh, and then the next one up is, you know, having having sort of the good opinion of of you know, the people around you. You know, the, your your, your self esteem um, uh, uh, is boosted by you know people around you liking you and all that. And um, the next one would have been this more creative, um, where, where it's you're you're no longer fulfilling a need. You you you're the you're actually you you become creative because you have you have a need to be creative. You have a need to use you know your powers basically in some way in some creative kind of way. Um, but Maslow came to see that many people get stuck at the self-esteem. And I would say, as society as a whole, at least in the West, I, I think that that's where we are today, is at the self-esteem level. Um, you know, social media seems to me to be a very good example of that. Um, you know, the whole competition for likes and all this kind of thing when you're online, whether it's Facebook or some other sort of thing, and rating everything and so on, and, you know, endless selfies and so on and so on. Um, but the thing with the self-actualization level <clears throat> turns out uh, Maslow came to believe and others have said something along these lines in different ways and of course Colin too this notion of a kind of creative minority um, Wilson's outsiders they're not necessarily a clear you know easily demarcated demographic um, group um, precisely because of who they are because when you become interested in you know self-actualization it's more about your interior it's more about your own inner world your own inner development it's not about showing off it's not certainly not about drawing a lot of attention to yourself no it's not becoming a hermit but you're not sort of you know you, you you're more interested in what's going on inside yourself let's say and that's not necessarily being self-absorbed that means like you know some book you're reading or some you know, book you're writing, um, then, you know, what other people are doing or, you know, drawing attention to yourself and getting other people to, you know, say, hey, wow, you're great or something like that. You know, you're, 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 you're working creatively and these people work on their own uh, by definition. So my, my, my feeling is just, just, I, I, I sort of take, you know, we have the idea of non, uh, non-local, uh, non-locality in, I guess it's quantum physics, you know, where, these different uh, particles sort of know what each one's doing, even though they're not in contact with each other immediately. And then likewise in the brain, there are neurons that are associated with certain activities or certain perceptions or certain um, kind of responses that uh, also fire, you know, at the same time, but they're not contiguous. They're not, they're not um, sort of connected to each other. So it's not, it's not a kind of causal, um, you know, it's not like one makes the other one do it because it, you know, sort of, like a domino effect, it's not like that at all. They just they light up different parts of the brain. So I, t you know, like to think, okay, well, there's people, <coughs> excuse me, people in the, around the planet that are like that, you know, and they don't necessarily know what the others are doing, but somehow their activities are all globally. If one one were able to sort of observe them, um, they're all purposive, and they're all moving towards, you know, in some way. I like to think. Embodying or helping on this this shift in consciousness that that Wilson uh, felt was on its way. Yeah, thinking about the future, when I talked about you know perhaps descending the hierarchy of needs mm. um, or any other you know an analogy you want to make with that, I was simply thinking in terms of two steps forward, one step back. That mm. is to say, it seems to be how as a species we've progressed in many ways. Mm. Not by any means to say that uh, we're not moving forward, but it's just we can get to certain points in our development, yeah. you know, where we kind of hit a bit of a buffer and sometimes even get knocked back a little bit. We, oh, have, yeah. to, we have to pick ourselves up and dust ourselves down. And for me yeah. personally, part of my life philosophy would be the phrase, there's nothing else for it. Because for mm. me, it's like you get knocked down, you get up again. It's like, what else are you going to do? Despair and suicide is not an option, you know? No, I mean, well, Wilson would agree, and I, I, I would as well. I think that's true, you know. And uh, No, I mean, we, it's, it's certainly not a Pollyannish view of things. I mean, we certainly are at times of trouble. Um, and, um, you know, I, I would say we, we are going through them now. In fact, I would say they've obviously intensified. Um, and I think Wilson was aware. I mean, one of the last things... Oh, again, he still was hopeful. One of the last things he was working on was a book um, his son finished called An End to Violence. And it was sort of the last thing he was writing about crime and, and you know, violence, human violence. And he fundamentally, I, I, I mean, he, the part he wrote, it's, um, he, 
was more sort of autobiographical. He was writing about his own, uh, how he came to basically study crime, how he came to write about it, become interested in it, and so on, and his own um, encounters with um, um, some of the um, murders and, and uh, serial killers and the correspondence he had, and so on like that. And it's around that that uh, his son Damon Wilson fleshes it out with these other chapters. But, but one of the fundamental things that he talks about, his son, is, is he, he agrees with Stephen Pinker. Uh, I think his book, Angels of a Better Nature, or something along those lines. Where he's arguing that, you know, although on the news we, we see this violence, statistically, so the crime levels have come down and so on and so on and so on. So, um, but again, it's, it's, it's not a Pollyannish kind of, you know, new agey kind of vision. It's, it's certainly anchored. Strictly in, in reality, he, he's an existentialist. So that fundamentally, that's about you know having your nose up against the world, as you're not running away to some fantasy uh, other world, whether it's you know utopian of some kind or the astral plane or something like that. But he he did believe in the power of you know human imagination uh, to be able to um, overcome, or basically overcome the challenges created by its own evolution. Well, it's interesting. Uh, here's another synchronicity for you, actually. That um, I've not read um, an end to violence as such, but when you began speaking about it, I started scribbling on my pad here, and I wrote down Stephen Pinker, the better angels of our nature. <laughs> there you go. There you go. And you immediately they surround us, Greg. They surround us. They certainly do. Okay. Well, Gary, closing point for today, really thinking about the materialist view of the world, the scientific reductionist view which um, Colin acknowledged but was trying to break through, expand upon. It seems that we, in, again, in, in I was talking earlier about the idea of human development and two steps forward, one step back. Yeah. We keep getting to these situations where we kind of think we've arrived, uh, whether it's positive, negative, or somewhere you know on the spectrum. We keep thinking kind of this is it. And we acknowledge that we don't know everything, but we're just about to. And... It seems that we're, despite all the existential angst and doubt surrounding our condition uh, in the early 21st century, that we kind of feel that things like, for example, you know, the speed of light, uh, mm. you know, is, is, is a fixed constant and we can't get beyond that. And, yeah. and all these other things that we kind of think of, yes, we're dysfunctional as a species, but actually the universe is what it is. And uh, whether we yeah. make whether we make it or not, all that's going to carry on playing in the background, that this is just yet another instance where we kind of think we've arrived but we're mm. just we're just at another plateau, perhaps, and uh, we can move yeah. beyond this. And it's almost like the world the worldview of the human species at any given time is a bit of a, a platonic cave, in, you mm. know, in the sense that there's always something well, guess, else out yeah. there, you know. Well, I think just the way you know, put it simply, the way it kind of works is you, you have um, you know the kind of people you know people at the front, the discoverers, whatever you want to call it, the explorers, the ones that you know go into the unknown. And conquer it one way or the other, and then that becomes part of the broader inheritance of the society at large. And um, things are getting better in terms of technology, and so on and so on. You know, there's always faster, smaller kinds of things, and all that. So there seems to be, yeah, uh, you know, things kind of settle in to you know how they are, and uh, until you have the next sort of generation of people that are pushing things into other areas. Um, but again, you know, the idea that there'll be some time in history where there'll be, the whole society would be at this kind of self-actualization level or not, I, I don't know. Okay, so Gary, today we've been talking about your recent book, say not your latest, but recent one entitled Beyond the Robot, The Life and Work of Colin Wilson. Uh, this talk is part two of three. Part three will follow in due course, the not-too-distant future just before we close off for today the book itself is widely available all the usual outlets but perhaps you'd like to share with listeners your website just details there and also you do have a new book uh you can remind us either just out or just about to come out perhaps you'd like to just tell folks about that oh uh, yes well the website is just uh, garylockman.co.uk and uh, we just put my name into Google. I, you know, you'll, you'll get there soon enough. And um, yes, a new book um, it's come out called Lost Knowledge of the Imagination. And in uh, many ways, it touches on things we, we talked about here at the sort of the tail end of, uh, of, of our talk about sort of uh, relationship between the mind and, and reality and um, how um, our consciousness is actually you know engaged with the reality that um, we perceive. 
Splendid. Well, Garrett, once again, thank you so much for joining us today on LegalizeFreedom.com. Absolutely my pleasure, Greg. Thank you for having me.